So thank you once again for coming. And before we do anything else, it is absolutely right and proper that we acknowledge that we are meeting on the Jarrah country of the Dajabarung, and we acknowledge that their forebears are the traditional owners of this land and not us. And they have performed age-old ceremonies of celebration, initiation, and renewal here. And we acknowledge their living culture and their unique role in this uh, community. And there are a couple of apparently um, COVID safe things that I need to mention. You are to try not to exchange bodily fluids <laughs> during the course of this event, if you can. Um, keep coughing to a minimum and try and make it phlegmless. <laughs> I think that just about covers it. So <laughs> I was uh, saying this, this is ostensibly called landscape as character, and we will deal with that, certainly, but I think really we are all here to learn about these three incredible writers and what makes them tick. So we'll do some landscape, but we'll do, do these chaps as well. <laughs> so on my left is Margaret Hickey, and Margaret is an award-winning playwright. That's true, is it not? And, and writer who has completed a PhD in creative writing. And your area of expertise was the representation of landscape in Australian fiction. So you will be quite a useful person to have here. Um, <laughs> this is Margaret's book of short stories, and they are sensational. They are not at all what you would expect. I don't know why it's called Rural Dreams. I think it should be called Rural Nightmares. It's so brilliant. Next to Margaret is Rosalie Hamm, who is the author of the acclaimed, best-selling, internationally best-selling book, The Dressmaker, which was also made into a pretty good film. Were you happy with the, with the film? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, and Rosalie is the author of four subsequent best-selling and acclaimed novels, the most recent of which takes Tilly out of Dungatar and into the Melbourne, and it's called The Dressmaker's Secret. It is also a sensationally good read. And on my extreme left is Josh Pabare, or J.P. Pabare who is also an award-winning writer, who has written three acclaimed and best-selling novels, the most recent of which is this one called Tell Me Lies. Would you call that a psychological thriller? Yeah, I would unambiguously call it a psychological <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josh also uh, used to, I don't think you do now, produce and host a really, really good podcast. Yeah, it's in a hiatus. I have a 10-month-old daughter, um, and I haven't done anything since she was born except try to sleep, essentially. Okay. Okay. So it's in hiatus for 17 years. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but what was amazing on your podcast, we've got uh, Joyce Carol Oates to come on your podcast. That's a really good get. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was... Um, extremely jet-lagged and had no idea why she was talking to me. Um, 
but it was it was fun. Yeah, she's a she's quite an interesting person. Um, yeah, Gore Vidal said the three most dispiriting words in the English language are Joyce, Carol, Oates. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find her so? <laughs> Wasn't my experience. Um, perhaps uh, you know, a, a little while ago she might have brought a touch more energy. Um, no, she was she was very kind and, and gracious. Um, but yeah, she. I think there was. It's, it's time she stopped writing. <laughs> no, seriously, she just she writes a, a five thousand page novel every four weeks, doesn't she? There's about four books out a year. It's, it's too much. She's the Barbara Cartland of literary fiction. <laughs> oh, and uh, Tell Me Lies is your most recent book, but you've got one coming out later this year called The Last... Yeah, the Last the Guests. Guests. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay, now the first question I'm going to ask you is about landscape. Are you conscious of using landscape as character or as a character? in your short stories? It's hard to ask that question to a short story writer because it, every story is different, but answer it as best you can. I'll try uh, The answer is yes. Oh. So yeah. I think about landscape first and foremost. So I'm a product of rural Victoria. I grew up and I still live in a small rural place. And I lived in rural towns, small country towns, and my father was my teacher. I think the biggest primary school I went to was uh, 30 kids in the school. Um, and I'd moved lots around because my dad was the headmaster of little bush schools. So always in my head, when I think about um, what landscape I would like to set, what I would like to set stories in. So rural dreams, for example, all those stories are set in places that I've lived or worked in. So yeah, I think it's um, it's um, integral to all all that I write. Really. Does it come first? Does it come first? Mm -hmm. Yes, usually it comes first. So um, I'll be thinking, for example, of um, what it feels like for my sons and, and my brothers when they drive home for football training each week, and they're. I think you're muted. Oh, on the front. There you go. Is that better? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'll make it much quicker. Oh, oh how annoying. I'll say it really quickly. So the answer is yes, I do think about landscape. Every time. <laughs> Rosalie, the same question for you. Uh, does landscape exist as character in yes. your books? Yeah, I'm with Margaret. I um, do exactly the same thing. I come up with um, basically creative writing way. I come up with an idea and what I want to say and all the rest of it. And then I get a landscape from my head, from my past, from my memory. Um, and I just apply that to wherever I am. It's a bit difficult in small rural settings because every town's got a railway station, a water tower, a creek. Um, and an IGA and a news agent and things like that. So you've got to try and make the same setting different all the time, but it's got the same elements. That's the, yeah. the hard part. But you've got the weather and you've got the seasons and... You've got your astonishing characters, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment. Josh? Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I 
my experience dovetails with Rosalie's in that. Um, Which of your novel, th this novel this is, in the is not a landscaping novel. No, no. Which is odd, um, but I'm here, so I will make some of that. No. Um, do, you, do you always say, are you, do you feel odd everywhere, Josh? <laughs> well, you know, my, so my two first novels are very distinct um, in their settings. Yep. Um, and, you know, um, I think it's, and they're both small town settings, one's in New Zealand and one's uh, in, in regional Victoria. Um, and I tr seek to sort of find the specific in the general in the sense that everyone knows what a small town is, so you don't need to describe it. Um, but I'll find what makes, uh, you know, a small arts hub in central Victoria different to a mining town. Because um, if you drove through both, you might not recognise a distinction immediately. So, yeah, it's, it's just about finding, um, as Rosalie um, astutely pointed out, it's about finding <clears throat> what it is that makes that town that town. Um, and this, tell me lies, uh, landscape is South Yarrow. So, um, and, and that was partly me being, being lazy because I was living there and it was so much easier to write, you know, where you are. Um, and she, my main character is running the tan every day because I am, and she, um, you know, resents some of the people that live in this part of the city as much as I did. So it sort of translated very easily. But for my first two novels, it was um, it was quite fun to go and <coughs> go to these places, spend a bit of time there, and really just engage with the people. In your novel, in the clearing, there's a marvelous scene where <coughs> I can't remember who the character is, but. She finds a white tail spider and she puts it outside. She doesn't kill it. And I thought that was marvellous because I'm on a campaign to rescue the white tail spider because it, it is a complete lie that they cause necrosis. They don't. They have one of the weakest venoms of all the arachnids. But that's just separate. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Margaret. Given that landscape is so important to you do, you, do you feel that it has some kind of active role in affecting the lives of the characters you put uh, in it? Yes. So, and I think in Australian literature, um, it has always played an active role. Whether in early Australian literature from the 1800s, it played the role of the, um, almost the enemy, the hostile land, man fighting a hostile land. And then we moved on from that to what's termed the Great Australian Silence from around the 60s and 70s. And now I think it's changed where landscape is almost a moral compass for characters, where um, characters realise that the land is more powerful than them, perhaps. And in feeling insignificant, um, characters then can then make um, decisions that they wouldn't have otherwise in, say, a Henry Lawson novel or a Barbara Bainton novel. So I think um, with the recognition of um, uh, land management and Indigenous land management practices and um, climate change, there's been a real switch in how characters view the land and their decisions. Yes. Would you agree with that, Rosalind? Absolutely. And the other thing I would say about it is that it's also that landscape where people face themselves, they find themselves and they, they're tested by a rural landscape. But the thing I find, um, and this just might be me, is that also with that comes often a cliché character. 
and they turn everything into something that you see on television and that really gets up my nose um, because, you know, they just sort of um, promote this idea that everybody in the bush is laconic and slow and, and they are, but not all of them. <laughs> but, but it's sort of like a bit of a dumbing down too um, and they overemphasise the elements and the landscape um, and make it a terribly scary, awful place where it's a thing of great wonder and great technology, great science, great experimentation, all those sorts of things have out, happen out there, but they're very rarely right. reflected in fiction, I think. You probably... Did, is it the same for you, Josh? Although you're, you're not as landscape dependent. Yeah, I, it's funny, I mean, listening um, to the two of you, I, I sort of... I sense I believe the same thing, um, although whether or not I exhibit in my work is, is another question. Um, but what I do find, the way that characters interact with landscape, certainly in Australian um, bush noir or, or rural noir or whatever you want to call it, um, there, there, t there tends to be a um, pattern of authors introducing an outsider to save a town. Um, which I just, I, I, I stop reading when that happens usually um, because I find it's, I, I, I want to read a book where the town overcome the problem or overcome the bad guy or whatever without the detective coming up from the city um, or without this outside saviour kind of coming in. Um, and I think it goes back to what you said, Rosalie, where there is this perception of, it's almost a sneering kind of, and it's not very rarely is it a writer from the country writing the, this perspective. It's usually someone from the city who has. Interject, I'm sorry, but I think I might be guilty of some of those things myself. I apologise. <laughs> as, as I was saying that, I was like, I, I haven't we'll read the entire back. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, it is. Um, yeah, it's entirely possible to tell a great story where someone does come from the outside and does save the town. Um, Are you feeling a bit odd? Yeah. Uh, you know, in my experience, um, it's too, too frequent, and it's. Um, I think now, if you publish a book in 2021, it happens. I want to see something fresh. That different. I, I want to see how the town solves a problem. Right. Um, because the, the urban saviour is a bit like the trope of the white saviour. Yes, correct, thing. correct. And there's this sort of assumed knowledge that comes from the city. We, we know better about yeah. the country. Why do people hate that? Like, we hate that. Wow. You know, stop. Stop with the metro sneering. You know, we don't like it. <laughs> and, you know, when, you know, when people sometimes say to me, oh, I'm from the country, and then they tell me what town they're, or they're from, I think... I sometimes call those towns hedge your bets. Like, you know, are you really, like, what, what is a country town? It's high, these days, what are country towns? You well, know, Brunswick is not the country. Sorry? Brunswick is not Brunswick the country. Brunswick is not the country. No. <laughs> Do you think, Margaret, that there is a danger in the approach of, of giving the landscape such an active role in anthropomorphizing it? in a way that is, uh, no, unhelpful is not the right word, but, well, just, is there a danger of anthropomorphizing it? Well, I, I don't know if there's a danger in that, because if you make landscape, um, as I said, the moral compass and the all-powerful kind of element, 
you, uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be through personification. So the idea of, um, you know, I don't think a story like Robert Davidson's Tracks would work now, for example. The idea of a white person going in and using landscape as solace. So landscape is used for humans as their redeeming feature. So nowadays I think that there's that, no, I don't think there is a danger in it. I think that there, if there's an acknowledgement that landscape is the powerful force and that we're a very small place in the universe, I think that that's, I think that's probably a step for the better. So Rosalie, would you, would you say that it's humans who bring menace to where they are, it's not the landscape that provides the menace? I tend to think it's a bit of both because if you bring menace to the landscape and in terms of fiction, then you have to kind of write the landscape that will support the action of what that character is doing. So in fiction, I think it's a bit of both, but in real life, it's just plain klutzness yeah. of people making mistakes out there. But it, it you know, I've, I've, I'm conscious of the fact that I have done the sorts of things I'm disparaging here um, at the moment, but I just think that you've got to be very careful in the landscape, and it, it will get you. It is a dangerous place, but... Um, it's a terrifying place, but it, the one thing it lacks that we don't lack is malice. Yeah, it's, it's not malicious. If you're fair, you've got to be fair. Yeah. And you've got to... Um, you know, in, I was in Geraldery um, last weekend, which is where I come from. They've got a bit of a mouse, mouse plague. Yeah, and at the, it was glorious because there's so many raptors in the sky and they're yeah. diving down. And tragically, one of my nieces has just bought a chihuahua. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that was great mirth. We're just saying, well, that's not going to last long. But <laughs> was it taken by a, a wedgie? No, it wasn't. Not yet. Because I, I would not call that tragic. <laughs> I would, I'd call that kind of hilarious. Well, I don't know. We're, there was a landscape full of kelpies running around. I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's a thing. But yeah. What was it for a rat plague? You said small rat plague. Well, what because they weren't inside anymore. They were outside. Okay, so okay. they were just sort of gently So it's still a plague, but it's less of a problem. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It had moved on. But, you know, quite used to them. People are horrified. That's... People are horrified when you talk about a mouse plague, but we're quite accustomed. I, I, I can remember in um, the 80s when I was living in Patchewalik, we would wake up um, and the buckets that our mum would put under our beds, under the thing, and one time there was uh, 50 mice yes. in the buckets crawling. And, yes. you know, as school children, well, I, I mean, I, I did terrible things to mice. Yes. Terrible <laughs> inventive yes. ways that school children mm. in the Mallee would come up down ways pipe. to murder. Yes, yeah, Down yeah. Pipe. I mean, you know, mm. if you're, I'm your woman if there's a mouse plague. And I yeah. want, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's, but that's from where we were born. <laughs> yeah. mm. but when you die, <laughs> there's going to be all these mice going. Yes. <laughs> and I will make a beautiful compost. <laughs> uh, Rosalie, if I could um, ask you about the dressmaker, you're probably sick to death of being asked questions. No about the uh, dressmaker, but I really do believe that it makes Wake in Fright look like Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> <laughs> look, the thing about it the dressmaker... It is so brilliant. It is... Oh, thank you. 
To call it gothic does it a disservice. It, it's funny. Uh, it's, it's just brilliant. Um, where on earth does Dungatar come from? Gee, I wrote it as part of a creative writing course and um, we know on this stage and probably some people in the audience, if you're in a creative writing course, there's jealousy and competition and ambition and you kind of flex your writerly muscles. Oh, right. And I thought The Dressmaker wasn't going to ever get published. They said that your first novel never gets published. And so I just put everything in and I took everything I'd ever experienced from the worst people I'd ever met and their worst <laughs> aspects and I just put them all in this town, added a heroine with a tragic past and there you have drama and then just let loose on everybody I disliked. But the the name Dungatar, yeah. that first syllable is genius. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's the sound, isn't it? That's what the place is like. Yeah. So, Josh, you live partly just outside Clunes and partly in Melbourne. This is probably an unfair question to ask you in this setting, but do small towns bring out the worst in people? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, it's odd. Um, so we're right in the heart of town uh, when we're up here, um, and we are our best selves out here. Um, and I think, you know, the community up here is fantastic. Um, and anyone who's visiting should stick around and go to the pub and go eat here. Don't go down to Ballarat necessarily. Spend a bit of time in Clunes because it's a great place. Um, but, but I can see, you know, I, I think there's a certain boredom um, when you're a certain age. So it's often, because I grew up in a small town and as a teenager, um, I heard Gary Dish complaining about, in the previous panel, complaining about his letterbox being set on fire, and I was just at that going, oh, shit. <laughs> done, definitely done that before, um, and, and worse. And, and, you know, when we, we grew up with guns and right. motorbikes and horses and... Are we talking weeks ago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was his letterbox. It was a lot of... No. Um, no, so we, you know, as a teenager, and this was in New Zealand um, a long time ago, but... There's, I think at a certain age um, in rural settings, you, you yearn for not necessarily the city, but um, it's sort of a, almost a way of asserting your um, independence from this place. You feel bigger than the place. And then yeah. when you return as an adult, there's something really comforting. Um, and when we come back and we've been away for a while, you see things changing, new shops opening, cafe ownership changes and stuff. But you hear about these pretty sometimes illicit affairs and all sorts of gossip. Um, and as sort of outsiders, and we do still feel like outsiders, um, but as outsiders, it's, it's so exciting going for a wine and catching up on all, all the gossip and what everyone's doing. Um, and I think it's, that's the biggest difference from the city. And I was saying to someone yesterday, you can't, it's, you know, in the city in a five kilometer radius, you have this, such density of population um, and you can move 10 minutes away and you're in a whole new community um, and you don't sort of have that out in, out in the country. Um, you're uprooting and really having to leave 
you know, you're having to leave what you know if you if you want to escape. Um, so I think that's the biggest difference. Right. What about you, Margaret? Your stories, some of those stories in there are so unsentimental about rural towns. Do you think they bring out the worst in people? I don't want to visit those towns. No, not necessarily. <laughs> no, I don't think they bring out the worst in people. Overcoat I, Joe. Overcoat Joe. I don't want oh, to go to that town. Oh, I, that's a real town. So, I'm um, just saying. So, uh, do they bring out the... I, no, I don't think so. I think country towns are microcosms of the city. So everything that happens in the city just happens in a rural town, but on yeah. a, on a, larger, on a um, more amplified scale. Yeah. So you can hide. There are places to hide in the city. Um, but you can't hide from your flaws and your faults and, and, and in, in small country towns. And that can be a really, uh, that can be a force for incredible good things, incredibly good things, particularly when there's bushfires or mouse plagues or, 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 someone, or someone's farm gets taken away from them from the bank. But, um, but it can equally be really claustrophobic. Yeah. Mm. Given that all of you work with landscape, although Josh, I'd say that your landscapes are, are more interior landscapes because you're very interested in the landscape of the human mind and all of the fraught things that can go wrong with it. But is there, have each of you had an experience that in a landscape that was overwhelming? Do you mean in kind of the literary sublime sense? It could or? be sublime or it could be terrifying, so long as that's not a trigger for weeping, because that's fluid. Oh. <laughs> that's not COVID safe. <laughs> um, I've, I've had a scary experience, but it uh -huh. turns out it's not um, terrible and it's a little bit funny, and so yeah. there's no trigger warnings required, but it okay. might sound as though there is at the start. Should okay. I tell yeah, it very yeah, quickly? Please, please. So I was hitchhiking. Um, when I was about 18, up the central, um, on the Stewart Highway, and with my, with my friend, and we were young and, and stupid, and we weren't getting a lift, and we wanted to get to Cooper Pedy, and it was getting towards nightfall, and it was kind of getting late, and we said, oh, we'll, we'll keep waiting for a lift, and, and we were smoking um, rolly smokes, and we didn't even, you know, we were, and we were sort of just having, we were doing dances for each other, and and we started saying it's getting a bit late, you know, what are we doing? And we thought we could either try and get a lift back to Adelaide um, or we can keep trying on for Cooper Petty. So we thought we'll keep trying on for Cooper Petty. And the landscape was one of those, um, it was January, so it was, and if you know the Stuart Highway, it's, um, it's very empty, it's a big landscape. Anyway, this ute um, pulled up and it was a young guy who was, this is not a terrible, nothing terrible happened here. Um, and uh, he um, said, get in the, get in. And so we said, we got in the car and we got in the car and we were doing our usual thing like, um, hi, you know, that you have to do when you're to sort of be appealing and fun for people who you're getting a lift with. You know, hi, we're going to Kipipedia, where are you from? And he didn't talk to us. And he was kind of um, a bit strange, and he was young, and we were looking at each other going, this is a bit strange. And I remember the landscapers were driving past thinking, not one car has passed us, and we haven't passed one car. And he pulled over to the side of the road, and he threw both our backpacks out, and he said to us, if 
you each have to give me $70 or one of you has to sleep with me. And he didn't say it like that. And, um, and we said, we haven't got $70. <laughs> that was our first thing we said. And then we said, no, we're not doing that. Anyway, no, um, foul. You know, we were sort of even still laughing a bit, but then he got in the car and drove off. And by this time, the sun set. And so it was dark. And we said, what do we do? What, what do we do? And the car, the you turned around, he pulled back up and he said, I was only joking. And we got back in. <laughs> <laughs> and that night at the pub at Cooper Pedy, it was the biggest, most hilarious, funny thing. $70! And everyone was laughing. And, we were, and, you know, from, and it's only, I swear, in the last few years that I've thought, that was really creepy. But it was honestly a, a great story for backpackers. Wow. It was. We laughed and laughed and laughed about it. This is why you write such creepy... You do... <laughs> You do creepy so well. What I love about your short stories is you never know where they're going to go. They always they start off seeming safe, and they veer off into creepy and um, tense. Oh, they're so beautiful. Rosalie, have you had an overwhelming natural experience, landscape experience? A good one or a bad one? No, I can only think of a... Um a bad one. I mean, there's something lovely about just sitting and looking at a paddock. And this is something that's... And all the stars in the sky. And, the, and that's a, a way of centering you. But I do remember once yabbing um, in a dam and a small child disappeared under the water. And there was um, terror for ten, five seconds. How It seemed like hours. And then I was conscious of everything around me being deadly. Everything was dangerous, and then the child popped up again. <laughs> we got him out again, but that was, but that, that was the only natural one that I could think of. But yeah, those hitchhiking stories. Well yeah. done, Margaret, for surviving that. Cheapers. What's the moral of that story? Children are dangerous. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think mm. that's true. Josh. Uh, yeah, I think I have a much more. Um, I think. I much more literal kind of encounter with nature in that um, when I was 18, I think maybe 19, I was just hitchhiking around New Zealand, um, drifting, and I went all the way up to um, the Bay of Islands and I had a friend there who worked on a um, ship and it's like this thing for kids and they go out at sea and he'll be out for like three days and he goes, yeah, come up. And I got up there and I was texting him, couldn't get on to him and realised he was out at sea. Didn't really have any money or anything, um, and so I saw these islands, and I'm like, oh, because I thought, where can I camp? And I was looking around, and it's actually quite built up where I was. I'm like, oh, I'll swim out to that island. Um, so I went in with my meagre funds, went and bought some two-minute noodles and some rubbish bags, and wrapped my pack in rubbish bags, which worked. Um, that's not the story. I, th you know, I was surprised myself. I'm like, it's going to sink. <laughs> And I tied off some fresh water and, um, and I swam and I was pushing it. <clears throat> and um, anyway, went out, got out to the island, um, made it out, unpacked and stuff. And I'd lost my water, so I used the rubbish bags as a catcher for rainwater. And I thought it was like Leo and the <laughs> island, you know, it was a very romantic. It was probably a few hundred metres swim. Um, 
And anyway, I set up my tent and everything. And um, I, I was walking around the island. I was sort of exploring, and I come back. And I went back, and at night, I was just reading in this tent, and it was lovely. I fell asleep, and the tent's closed. Um, and I fell asleep, and I could hear something just rattling, sort of like a, I don't know how I'd describe it, just a crunching. And, um, and I was like, oh, yeah. And then I was sort of searching for my little headlamp, and I turned it on, and there was the biggest rat. Like, <laughs> it was like a cat. It was huge. And it was eating my two-minute noodles, um, <laughs> nonplussed by my presence. Uh, and yeah, just um, I, I had a panic attack. I didn't know what to do. It was between me and the door. And um, anyway, it was in the tent, yeah. So, and the tent was closed, and so eventually, like, got it out, and I was still, it was very hard to sleep. Um, and I, I was like, it must have chewed its way through, but I checked, and there was no holes. And so I thought maybe while I was out, I've left the tent open, and it's gone in, and then I've gone to bed, and it's been in there the whole time. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that, we, when I left the island, um, and I only had, like, a little bit of battery, and I kept going outside and checking to see if my friend Adam was back. And then he um, messaged, and he goes, yes, we're, I'm back. And he's like, I'll, I'll hire a kayak and come and get you if you want. I go, no, 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 no. Meet me, you know, over there. I'll swim over. And um, something odd happens in the sea um, is sometimes tides go in and come out, and there's a, it's a sort of channel between the island and the land. And um, when I was swimming, uh, the tide was going out, and so I was swimming, and my bag was just going sideways, and he was watching me, and it was sort of getting dark, and I was swimming, and it took, the swim out probably took about half an hour. The swim back in was about an hour, and I was getting swept out of, to sea, and I was swimming as hard, and I was exhausted, and um, I got swept right down, and I could see sort of where he would be. It was getting dark, I couldn't really see him, and then, um, I just got swept so far down and just ended up crawling over these rocks, bloody, like, I don't know how I managed to keep a hold of my pack. And um, yeah, and so that was my thing. And I'm like, I just remember thinking, this is precisely how idiots drown. Yeah. <laughs> like I got out of the water and I'm like, I, I, sh I should have drowned. So that, that was very lucky. Um, you, you should follow my advice, Josh, and never go anywhere further than 50 metres from a flush lavatory. <laughs> That's great advice. I would never get in trouble. <laughs> um, you're all, it seems to me you are much more interested in characters' flaws than in their virtues. Would that be true, Margaret, of your writing? Flaws are, flaws are probably, flaws are always more interesting, aren't they, than I virtues? Think, I think so. Yeah. Rosalie? Absolutely, because then they've got to work to overcome them or learn to live with them or, but I'm with Margaret, they're much more interesting, they're more fun to write yeah. than, it's hard to make someone nice and lovely really interesting. Yeah. But you've got to have one, otherwise people think you're awful. So there's usually one, I can't think of one at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I can't either. Um, Josh? Yeah, I think, it's, um, I think it's so important for all fiction to have realistic characters. And people might present as perfect, but as soon as you interrogate 
interrogate their sort of interiority in the interior world, you realise they often will harbour insecurities or whatever. And that the way that interacts with plot is so important, I think, for fiction writers. Yeah. So given that, Margaret, what do you think is the most overrated virtue? I'm probably going to get in trouble. I'm not trouble, but um, I think kindness. Kindness? Oh, I'm a bit over be kind. I think sometimes I, I like kindness itself oh, a as a virtue, kind of monster. but the whole be kind mm -hmm. I think can sometimes mean um, shut up. And I think people are being told to be kind a lot when what they're meaning is be quiet. Be quiet. Yes. Yeah. And I don't want to be quiet. No. Rosalie? Um, I've given this 30 seconds thought. Um, <laughs> and I'm a bit inclined to say honesty because there's, uh, there's a place for dishonesty. There's a place for a, a lie. And you can like maintain the equilibrium by saying nothing and everything is lovely but you can also use a lie to destroy the equilibrium when it's absolutely necessary to do so so that someone is revealed and you can also save people by telling them a little white lie and you know there's people i grew up with in a small, that small community, I'm sure it's the same for you. I know about people who were adopted and they don't know, and they will never know. And there's something about, you know, all of the kids in the family, they've got brown hair and brown eyes, and the one in the middle's when that um, seasonal worker blew through, and they're blonde, and you know, and so there's stuff like that. So I think honesty is not always the best policy. Um. I was going to say honesty. What did uh, you say honesty? I would still say honesty. I think um, in certain circumstances, uh, dishonesty is morally permissible. Um, and I also think I make money lying. I am full of shit 90% uh, of the time. No, I sit at home and I lie and make things up. Um, and I think we, in, that, in a broader sense, um, that's often how people deal with trauma is to tell themselves lies and to tell their children lies. And I think that's more important than being honest. Okay. I'd nominate piety, I think. You know, you can't, you just can't have dinner with someone who's pious. It's so boring. Very overrated. Yeah, it's very overrated. Uh, you all, uh, you all, write beautifully and with high seriousness as well as high comedy but with high seriousness do you do each of you have a guilty pleasure in reading margaret um, uh, i sometimes when i'm um when i'm at a loss for what to read i go back and read my old georgette higher books Oh, they're fantastic. Are they the Regency ones or the uh, crime uh, fiction ones? Uh, no, no, they're the Georgian sort of romance uh, ones. Yes, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're, they're terrific. Um, Pride and Prejudice every time. That's not a guilty thing. No, but it's, it's, it's a kind of a soap opera thing and I'll either read it or watch it on television, all of the versions, even the one with Kira Knightley in it and all those sorts of things because it's just so... You know exactly what's going to, to happen. And 
you can cry freely and you know be happy freely and get really emotional about the whole thing on your own in your bedroom reading it and it's just such a cathartic thing and I love it because I'm embarrassed about how many times I've read it and watched it. I don't know. Uh, I mean, Georgia, hi. I wish those were my, <laughs> I wish that was my guilty reading. No, I, I actually, I can honestly say I don't feel any guilt at all reading anything I read. Um, and even I read the trashiest crime novels. Um, I read things that would make you blush. But I take no guilt or feel no guilt whatsoever because um, otherwise I'd probably be watching Netflix or doing something or scrolling. So um, as long as I'm reading, I don't, I, don't, I don't mind. If I had to pick something, it would be sometimes I'll go and find really bad reviews of great books. Um, and it makes me feel uh, less insecure. <laughs> Yeah, if you go to um, Goodreads. Precisely. Precisely. Which yeah. you should, go, as a writer, you should Go to like a, a unanimously accepted work of genius and find a one-star review, and it is yeah. satisfying. <laughs> There's nothing more pleasing. Pride, pride, prejudice, one star. Yeah. <laughs> what was the last book that made you cry? All the light. You cannot see. All the light you cannot you see. You cannot see. Uh, yeah. That was just a fabulous book. Yeah. Rosalie? I, th I can't think. I think probably it might have been um, The Vanishing Half, um, but I'm not, I can't think of what it was in that book that made me cry. So now I'm lying. I can't remember. No idea. Uh, probably Tin Man by Sarah Winman, which was... Sorry, say that again. Tin Man. Oh, the Tin Man. Yeah, by is it Sarah Winman, is that yeah. how you say it? Um, which is, now it's an odd title. That's an odd name for, given her surname. Um, but yeah, that, I, I, it was, I don't know what it was, and it was a really happy moment in the book. Um, and I'm not a real big crier, but it got me good. Yeah. Wonderful. What about you? Oh, the last book that made me cry was Sebastian Barry's A Long, Long Way which is a World War I novel. And if you can read that without crying, oh. you are a monster. Okay. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful book. Now, Margaret, is there a book that you are frankly embarrassed that you haven't read? That I haven't read? Yeah. yeah see, I teach literature at La Trobe University, I so know. I constantly have to pretend or say, oh, I love your work, and I go, um... Do you know what? I've tried, and I don't like war and peace. I've tried. Um, Might be the translation. Maybe. But yes, yeah. you have to read it in Russian, yeah, and, yes. and then you'll yeah, enjoy it. You'll love it. You'll love it. You'll love it. Yes. You'll love it. <laughs> Rosalie? Um, all of them. I've tried Don Quixote. I've tried War and Peace. I've tried Crime and Punishment. I've tried them all. And I just can't do it. I just—they don't hold me. They don't hold my do you think attention. It's a all of those are translations. Do you think it's a consequence of the translation? No, I think that it's my mind. I think that they don't captivate my mind. Something right. happens where I don't get through one. Yeah, they're heavy and not. It, it's a reflection of me and how I live my life and what I do. But I just can't maintain the interest in. You know, and I'm not quite sure about why they have all those descriptions of landscape and 
and what that means. And and so I just go, oh, really, get up and do something else. Josh? Uh, gravity, no, actually, Gravity's Rainbow, I have read. Um, I was going to say the infinite Jess. And, I, and I, I refuse to be friends with anyone who claims to have enjoyed that book. <laughs> I've, I'm about a third of the way through, and I have been since 2012. Right. Okay. Oh, um, I'm embarrassed to say that I've never read The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, oh I know. fabulous. Yeah, and it's a big shame. Mm. And I've never been able to finish Ulysses either, also mm. a big shame. But that's I, I just gave up on that as well. Yeah. I read I read Ulysses. I had to as part of my course. I could really can't remember much about it except Bromley, but no, I did read. I'm quite pleased with that. Is there is there a writer who made you write, Margaret? I really loved Peter Temple's work, and when Peter Temple died, I felt so, I'd never met Peter Temple, but I felt so, and he's a Ballarat man, wasn't he? You know, and I felt. Um, I think his writing was terrific. The Broken Shore um, is one of my favourite books. Um, Dylan Thomas, Under Milkwood, was the first time I went, oh my God, that's sensational. Yeah. 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 Um, I've got probably two. One, you can't, it's, it's no longer in vogue to say that you loved J.K. Rowling's work, uh, given her views. Um, but. Uh, the Harry Potter books, for sure, I think, made me want to write. Um, and the other one was Tim Winton, because I read his books. I'm like, shit, I can do this. Um, and then I realised that I can't. <laughs> um, it, and I think that's the power. I, I think he's, yeah, I mean, even at a sentence level, I think he's brilliant. But, um, but what he does is often quite hidden, you know. Um, it's, not, it's not there. It's not obvious what the effect he has on you. It takes incredible discipline to sit down and to write a novel. So what's your greatest extravagance? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm a sort of a binge writer. So um, I write because I work full time and I've got a young family. And um, uh, greatest extravagance in writing, do you think? No, no, no. Um, as a kind of reward for what you do oh. in, your, in your life, do you? Oh, nothing. <laughs> I don't know. I, um... Oh, no, I, I always like to drink wine. Oh, well, there you go. Maybe Ro it's... Ro that, that gets you through the writing, though, doesn't it? Rosalie? Oh, um, it's a trip to the letterbox, really. You know, if you... If Josh write... hasn't set it on fire. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't know where it is. I hope Gary's not in the crowd, actually. <laughs> but um, even when it's not time for the postie, uh, you, you write until there's no more guilt. And then I allow myself to get up and do something. But I think probably cleaning the bathroom, things like that, that tops it all. When I know that I can do those things when I've written enough. So I'm very happy to do that. I need to give you my address. <laughs> um, I am, uh, now that I've got a child, a dependent, a less so, but I was a real manic writer. I would um, write for 12 hours a day for a month, and then, and then after that I'd be exhausted, but I would normally, um, and this is an extra thing, I, I would normally actually legitimately go on a holiday. Um, right. So I would go to like 
I've got a brother in Byron Bay, or I'd go to Ubud, or I'll go to New Zealand. I'll just go away for a week, right. and um, either that, or I'll just watch the trashiest reality TV, sh like the worst X on the Beach, you know, anything like that, really. Um, horrible, horrible, mind-numbing reality TV, and I'll just lie in bed watching it and recover. This is my last question, and then we'll hand it over to the audience. The time has gone by so fast, but Margaret, where do you feel most competent? In writing. No, anywhere. Um, you need to talk into your mic. Uh, um, where do I feel most competent? Um, I, I feel pretty confident um, teaching. Competent. Com comp sorry. Competent. Oh, comp oh. Um, can be the same thing. I think probably when I'm um, when I'm teaching a subject that I um, feel really confident in. Right. Yes. Okay. Like Gothic literature. Yes. Okay. Mm. Rosalind? Competent or confident? No, competent. Competent. I'm competent at most things, which is annoying. I, there's, if you'd asked me what I excel at, I might have said driving. Um, you were late. I know, but I got, here, I got here unscathed and I didn't get pulled over. Oh, it, um, anyway, um, most competent, I think probably writing. Yep. I feel once I sit down and I get into it and, you know, you have those moments where you go, that's amazing, you're brilliant, you know, <laughs> that's really good. And then you read it an hour later and delete it. But just that whole thing, I've, I've got a handle on it. I feel quite comfortable doing that. Right. Josh? Um, I'd say probably broadly problem solving, but certainly in fiction. I think crime writers are all good problem solvers because we write ourselves into an absolute trap and then we have to figure our way out of it. Um, and I think the editing process, certainly in the early stages for me, is problem solving. Um, so I'd say problem solving and also very competent at the pub. And sometimes <laughs> combine both those things. Mm. It's an underrated skill. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. And now we'll pass audience, uh, questions over to the audience. There'll be a roaming microphone if you put your hand up. Someone will come around with a microphone if you have any questions. I'm right there. Sorry about that. Um, I love the expression metro sneering. Um, one of my questions, the question I have is around um, writing in rural landscapes. As um, uh, metropolitan people become less associated with rural areas through family connections, which I think is um, now something that's happening a lot, how may that change the way people write about rural landscapes and making those connections for um, people who haven't got those um, historical connections with the land. Who would like to take that first? Oh, uh, good question. Uh, see, see, in the past, I've had you know a minute to think about the answer because that's why I sat here. Um, <laughs> now I have to think. Uh, I would say, I mean, I, I don't know how to tackle it, but what I would say is I think um, it's, it's very, very important now, probably more than ever, to um, elevate voices from these parts of the country. I think it's really important that we represent um, rural Australia, uh, and, and in fact rural anywhere, uh, it's the same in New Zealand. I think it's important that we don't focus solely on cities 
stories told by city people, rural stories told by city people. I think it's important to see um, writers like Robbie Arnott, who was here a couple of years ago, writes Tasmania incredibly well and better than anyone outside of Tasmania could even dare to try. Um, and he never names Tasmania in his books, oddly. Um, and I think there's lots of writers that are writing these settings well and we just need to elevate those voices. And that will be a feedback loop because then when this is more visible in the writing community, when these books are selling in more bookshops and things, then city readers and city, consequently, city writers are going hear. to also you hear, understand. I, you hear, I say, as someone who um, still lives in rural communities and writes there too. And I think that's also, that's such a great point too, because, you know, we've, we've had traditionally with pastoral writing, the pastoral mode of writing, and there's the romantics, you know, Wordsworth, who wrote about beholding landscape and looking at landscape from an urban point of view. So I think when you get um, the point of view from people who live in the country or have lived in the country, um, it becomes much more authentic and and enjoyable, probably. So, because rural people write about the truth, they write the truth about the land. They sort of write from being there and surrounded by it. It's not something they've seen during driving past. So it's quite a different thing. But I'm I'm not sure that there are. I thought there would be more connections into rural Australia, given technology and people working from home and the price of houses in Shepparton and Togemore and places like that. So I think there's a bit, as always, there's a bit of cross-culture going on. Just to add to that, there's also that, this kind of theme of disappearing towns as well. Um, so Sean Prescott wrote a great book, um, I forget the name of it now, it's debut, that was about a disappearing town. It's quite satirical, but it's... Um, and there's also that, that this history will disappear if there's no um, record of it. And, and often that record is represented by fiction and, and even non-fiction from these places. Also, uh, just to note, uh, Lynn Yowett has written amazing, um, and she's on later this afternoon. She might be in the crowd, in fact. Um, but that's a good example of a writer who has grown up in this place and writing a really compelling um, setting from it. Uh, another question? This better be a bloody good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's probably not that good a question. But I really enjoyed the dressmaker. But um, getting back to the topic of landscape, the one that really spoke to me the most was the year of the farmer. Tell us about how that, uh, there's a terrible, terrible female character in that story. Tell us how that story came about and why you chose to write it. That came from about 60 years of listening to my father and my brothers whinge about the lot of the farmer because they're all farmers from up around Gerildry. And we used to do this thing, which is probably very familiar to most people in the room, where you would do the drive around with your dad. Yeah. So you'd get in the ute or the car. And the, we were only there really to open the gates. But... Um, I listened to this all the time and I came to believe that he was right. I came to see it from his point of view, that being the primary producer, the one that nobody can live without, that produces everything, but the one that squeezed the most and squeezed the most and squeezed the most um, to, 
you know, the productivity squeeze and how you've got to produce more and get paid less and all that kind of stuff. And so that was just an ode to them and, and it just came straight from that, all those years spent opening gates with my dad and my, my, my brothers. Thank you. And also I'd just like to say that in that um, is you know when you were sitting in the ute and the, the, it's cooling down and the, the hood's ticking and the, the land around you's buzzing and ticking with animals and all that kind of stuff and there's a zephyr swooshing past. It's such a peaceful, wonderful thing to do and I would often look across and my dad would be fast asleep with the newspaper, The Age, spread out in front of him. So it just came from that. Um, our time is up, I'm afraid. Um, before you thank these marvellous people, their books, they will be signing copies of their books upstairs in the library. If you go to the library and go upstairs, that's where the bookshop is. Um, if you could thank these marvellous people for coming. Thank you. And thank you for coming, and we'll see you in the bookshop.